Last week, we finished up a 10-week series we've been in about the story of Joseph out of the Old Testament. And last week, we talked about the fact that what we recognized in that story is that Joseph lived with a God-centered worldview. In other words, his understanding of the world and of life was filtered through the lens of God is God, and God is in control, and God is good, and God has a plan. And so when bad things would happen in Joseph's life, like what his brothers did to him, he could say to his brothers, I know you had bad intentions with this. You meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. And as we talked about worldview, and I talked a couple of weeks a little bit about Generation Z, I wanted to kind of circle back around to that today. And we're going to do a little bit something different today. So just kind of bear with us. It's highly unusual that we're just not unpacking a piece of God's Word, but we're we're not going to do that exactly the way we normally do it today. But I want to continue to talk a little bit for a moment about worldview. Who in this room has a worldview? Everybody in this room has a worldview. Everybody is living with a worldview, and our worldview determines how we understand the world and interpret the world and how we live out our lives, what's important to us, what we consider to be valuable. Let me give you a definition of worldview. It says this, a worldview is the filter through which you experience, interpret, and respond to the world. It's your decision-making filter. And there's really, I think, seven basic fundamental questions that how you answer these questions determine what your worldview really is. Let me give you those seven questions. The first one is this, does God exist? Now, how you answer that is going to determine how you understand the world. And just with question number one, we've already kind of just divided the population almost in half just with that already. Second question, how did everything begin? How you answer that is so important. What's wrong with the world? What's the problem? What's the ultimate solution? Who am I? And why am I here? And what happens after I die? Those questions and how you answer those questions go a long way toward determining how you understand the world. Now, back in the day, how a person's worldview was shaped It kind of happened in a setting that looked a lot like this. And maybe you remember this from back in the day. This was my mom's favorite television show. Who knows what show that is? The Waltons. That's right. You know, Uh, not that we were shaped by watching the Waltons, but we used to sit at the table with our family, sometimes multi-generational grandparents, parents were there, children were there, grandchildren were there. And we would listen to those conversations. We would talk about life. We would talk about God. We would talk about the world. And that's really kind of how our worldview was shaped. Now, fast forward to the world we're living in. Now it looks more like this. There you go. Kind of ironic. It's that, but we couldn't get it up there all of a sudden. But there you see it, and and, and that's how a lot of us are kind of seeing life now. We're inundated in the information age that we live in by tons of information always coming at us, flowing to us in a never-ceasing stream. Now, here's what's interesting, shocking, I think, even, is researchers are now telling us that worldview in a person begins to shape as early as 13 months old, and typically A person's worldview is set and determined by the time that person is 13 years old. From 13 into their 20s, their worldview is shaped and refined and fine-tuned and challenged and articulated. But typically, we have to about the age of 13 today 
to see a, a person kind of determine what their worldview is. Now, um, we know God can change the worldview of an adult, of an older person. Typically, for a person in their adult years to have a shift in their worldview, it takes something supernatural to happen. It's just that difficult. But we know God can do that, and we certainly see that God does that. But clearly, church, listen, if we want to reach people with the gospel, we need to realize that the place that the hearts are the most fertile is 13 months through those years in junior high and high school. That's where their worldview is being developed. Now, I've had some conversations recently with our new student pastor. He's, I guess I can still say he's new. I think he joined us back in March. And so, Josh, if you'll come hang out with me today. Josh and I have been having some conversations, and um, we're going to get a place for he and I to sit down and hang out with y'all for a few minutes today. And from those conversations, I thought, you know what I'd like to do is I'd like to bring you all into this conversation, let you hear kind of some things we've been talking about, because I know the heart of Grace Life. You're for the, the next generation. I know that, um, as I am. And I think this is helpful for us as parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and just people who want to see what we know to be true about God to be passed down to the generations that are coming behind us. So we're thankful to have Josh, his wife, Missy, their little boy, Bear, here at Grace Life these days. And I was telling Josh that um, when this church brought me here to be on staff as the children's and youth pastor in 1998, here's how much has changed. Not only did the students not have phones in their pockets in 1998, I didn't either. Our first one was born, our first child was born in 1999, and I remember getting the 911 page on my beeper, and I had to find a telephone to call St. Vincent's Hospital to find out what in the world is going on. A lot has changed over the last 25 years. And as I was telling you last week, even research organizations like Barna's Group, they are shocked at the societal shifts that have happened rapidly, more rapidly than probably any other time in history uh, just in the last 25 years. So, man, from what I was doing and how I was doing it in 1998 to where y'all are now, worlds apart. So help us all kind of understand, Josh, where are we today? What's happening? So based on what you were saying earlier, it sounds like student ministry is the most important thing in the church. Did I hear that right? I mean, I might be a little biased, but... I don't, I don't think know. that's far off. Okay. My anyway. experience, I don't think it's far off, honestly. So I'm going to be talking in general terms um, about this next generation. I'll say I love them. I like them. They're really neat, and they're very different from we are, uh, from, from maybe how we were raised. And we can get frustrated about that, or we can learn from it. Uh, and adjust. Um, and I notice you're using your phone today. I am. How do you know? Yeah. How do you know the people in that earlier picture weren't doing a Bible study on their phone in the modern family scene? Anyway, um, they could have been. You don't know. Could have been. I don't know. Could have been on judgmental on my part. Um, so some of what I'm going to say, you're going to be like, that doesn't really apply to me, my kids, my family situation. You're going to find exceptions to some of what I'm going to say. Um, and that's fine, but I'm going to speak in broad terms. Uh, first thought is related to this talk on worldview, and that's just understanding the, the moral ethic of this generation. And they would say it's based on being kind. You might hear that phrase a lot, you know, be kind. That's sort of their greatest good, um, as they would define it. And 
man, I, I wish we all were a little bit more kind. It's nothing wrong with that. It's a, um, it's a fruit of the Spirit. But where they will sometimes trip up is uh, Gen Z will equate being kind with simply being nice. And they'll treat those oftentimes as synonyms. Uh, so just some examples, you know, well, we can't talk about sin or we don't want to be confrontational. That's not nice, but they would call it you know, not being kind. Um, and you obviously see where that rubs up against uh, the gospel, the story of the cross, because at its core, the message of the cross, the message of Jesus is that we are deeply sinful and messed up and can't fix ourselves, save ourselves. Um, that's not very nice. Uh, and so as we are speaking uh, truth uh, to Gen Z, it has to be this speaking truth in love, which is always just a, a difficult tension. I think uh, if you find somebody who perfectly speaks truth in love every time, that person is Jesus, and we should follow that person. Um, but we can help that by not throwing additional stumbling blocks in front of our kids. Um, so maybe for you, it's are you being genuinely kind, as the Bible would describe it, uh, in front of your kids? Because you guys probably were able to highlight the hypocrisy of your own parents growing up and didn't give them a lot of slack or grace for it. This is something that they're really attuned towards. And so if you were going to go from this place and go be unkind towards your waitress at, you know, Habaneros after church, that's going to be a stumbling block uh, to your Gen Z children. Or if you got thrown out of a Little League tournament uh, baseball game yesterday uh, for being unkind to the umpire, um, and then also... It, thinking about the way that we engage online and through social media, and our kids see this. Um, for many of our students, they were old enough that they were on social media in the last couple of years, and in parts of 2020, 2021, that was where we were having our social interactions. And for the most part, when we became behind a keyboard or behind a screen, we did not become more kind as individuals, and our kids see us and they think, you know, mom and dad, all they want is to, to own the libs or, you know, to crush their enemies in, on a Facebook comment section. Um, so those are some ways that some of us are maybe unwittingly uh, throwing up stumbling blocks. So when you say stumbling block, just to clarify, so because kindness is this generation's number one ethic, yeah. arguably, when they see those of us who claim to be Christians acting in unkind ways— they see hypocrisy. They see a disconnect from what we proclaim and how we live. And that, that could cause tremendously negative repercussions to happen in their heart and their soul and their understanding of God and their faith. Yeah, they're hitching Jesus to that and what my parents say they believe versus how they act and choosing whether that's who they want to be. So. Um, and just a second observation, just from my limited time here at Grace Life. Like I said, it feels like I started five minutes ago. Um, but this group of students, man, they are blessed slash cursed with endless opportunity for the most part. Um, for the most part, you guys will drive them all over the southeast in pursuit of travel, baseball, 
or you know dance team cheerleading whatever it is in pursuit of their dreams and more power to you for a lot of that uh, but that's my story as well to a degree I grew up playing baseball so in high school season obviously was six days a week and then in summer I'm going to play like a hundred games of summer ball and then in the fall well of course it's fall ball and then winter workouts all throughout the winter and for me it was in pursuit of well I want to play at the next level I want to play in college and I did that and I was on scholarship all four years and then somewhat recently I did some math on it and yes I, I saved a little bit of money on school uh, through playing baseball but adding up the travel ball fees, uh, hotels, gas, baseball bats, gloves, you know, gym memberships, lessons, all this stuff, I might have broken even. And, you know, maybe there's a little bit of regret in that and what I could have been more involved in in church growing up throughout middle school and high school. Um, I said in the first service, if I had just gotten a job at Chick-fil-A, I probably could have paid for college just as efficiently. Um, as with my baseball scholarship, and been at church a little bit more often. So we've got kids, as a result, who they claim to be a part of this church, and I couldn't pick them out of a police lineup because they're never or rarely here. And if you're only ever here once in a blue moon, you might go home and say, you know, I just didn't, I just don't really feel connected to the church or the people in my youth group or the people in my life class. Well, hard to do when you're never here. Um, And if we have a culture of that, I think uh, I read recently, the average person considers themselves to be a faithful church member if they're here once a month. Well, you might think that you're going to see these people that once a month that you're here. Well, if they're only here once a month, you're going to see them about three or four times a year. How are you going to form community with people that you only see three or four times a year? So that's kind of where we're at in a lot of ways with this group generationally. Which leads us to a couple of other numbers that are really concerning to us. The first one is something that's very not new, uh, which is that about 70% of students walk away from their faith after they graduate high school. That number has basically been the same since I myself was in high school. Uh, but what is uh, what we learned recently after doing some numbers is there's about 70 students who are on our roll of Grace Life families that have made no public profession of faith. So they're between eight, 11 to 18 years old. About 70 of those have made no public profession of faith. The reality is that number of people who walk away from their faith after high school doesn't just happen at high school graduation. Um, People are making decisions uh, if they're going to follow Jesus or not, if they're going to choose Jesus or reject Jesus while they're still here with us sitting next to you in the chair. And so what are we doing in elementary school? What are we doing in middle school investing in them? So I want to give you guys just some numbers on some maybe a profile of students whose faith lasts, students whose faith sticks. Um, obviously, don't, I'm not trying to uh, discount you know, the Holy Spirit's supernatural work in that. These are general statements, uh, but maybe something we can learn from. Uh, the first five 
come from a group called kidmenscience.com. Just a quick profile of kids whose faith sticks. First thing is that they ate dinner as a family at least five nights a week. Not necessarily eating at home, but as a family, they ate together at least five nights a week. Also, those students, generally speaking, served with their families in a ministry, served alongside of their parents in some kind of ministry within the church. Third thing is they had one spiritual experience in the home during the week. And it doesn't have to be a um, you know, family devotional time, although that's good and fine. I mean, it could be something as simple as uh, you know, talking about the Sunday sermon at Habaneros or wherever you're going. While you're kind to your waitress. Yes, while you're being kind to your waitress. Fourth thing is that they're entrusted with responsibility in ministry at an early age. So given them something that they can do that they're involved with uh, that's age appropriate. And I think we spoke to that. We have many of those things taking place already, which is great. And the fifth thing is had at least one faith-focused adult uh, in their lives other than their parents, be it a, uh, a student pastor, a Sunday school teacher, somebody who wasn't their parent that they went to church with, that cared about them, invested in them. So that's kind of a quick snapshot. Um, and then the next few factors were from a book called uh, Why They Stay, and they lead off with there's four things that you might think would matter but it turned out they didn't really matter, and 10 things that did. First factor that did not really matter was whether or not they had a youth pastor. So, which is good, because less than a quarter of churches do have a youth pastor on staff. It didn't really matter, statistically, what kind of school they went to, whether the student went to a public school, a private Christian school, or whether or not they were homeschooled. It did not really matter if they attended a, a new Christian class or a catechism or something like that. And it didn't really matter the faith of the grandparents. Now, that does not include, I understand, some grandparents are raising their kids. But in situations where, you know, the parents are raising the kids and they're not in church, the parents are showing no fruit of Jesus in their life, you as a grandparent being here, it just didn't statistically have an effect on the faith of the student. Obviously, we can think of exceptions to that. Yeah, but it makes sense. It's hard for yeah. the faith of grandparents to overcome the lack of faith in the home the child's being raised up in. Mm -hmm. There's influence, but it's hard to overcome that. Yes. Uh, and then 10 things that seem to really matter. Uh, number one, 75% of students who's, uh, who stayed in the faith made a public profession of faith before they were 16. So sort of before that worldview is kind of all the way formed, 75% of those who stayed made a public profession of faith before they were 16. Once again, 70 or so of our students have not. Uh, second thing is kids who were not baptized were 400% more likely to stray, to walk away from the faith. That includes kids who might have said, hey, I got saved at VBS, but they were not uh, baptized. They either they didn't want to get around to it or just didn't feel comfortable doing it. Those were 400% more likely to stray. 
A third factor is if they didn't have a close relationship with their mom, they were 65% more likely to stray, 50% for dad. And similarly, if uh, mom and dad were married and stuck together, 11% more likely to stay and to stay engaged. So just kind of at a snapshot, mom loved dad, dad loved mom, goes a long way. And five, those who sit in adult worship service as opposed to going off to children's church were 38% more likely to stay. I love that one because we've been doing that a long time at Grace Life, you know. Kids' church here goes up to kindergarten, then after that, and it's always fun watching parents when they're transitioning, like, oh, my gosh, my kid's going to act up. They probably do. Mine did, too. Still do sometimes. It's okay. It's part of it. Joel, you want to read the next one? I would love to read the next one. If you grew up in a church and did not like your senior pastor as a person, you're 90% more likely to stray. So you don't matter, according to the stats. Not nearly as much. But, like, I matter more than anything, right? So that's a big deal to me, obviously, and I know that. That's why I love, one of the reasons I love to be connected to our children, our students. That's why I cook dinner for college students on Wednesday nights. I know that's important for me to have a meaningful connection. So I got to do my part on that. But I also got to say, hey, parents, if you're here and then you and your family go to Habaneros and you're being kind to your waitress, but you're not being kind to me, seriously, you're using that time to kind of skewer the leadership of your church, that's going to have a tremendously terrible adverse effect uh, potentially on, on your children because of that. So criticize me privately or criticize me to my face, but don't in front of your children. That's just not wise. Not wise at all, I think, right? And smaller number, uh, 16% more likely to stay if they would say Why that are they you here? Why did we hire you? That's a good... Why, don't, why didn't I just get a raise to do your job? That's fair. Fair enough. Fair. I don't have the energy to do your job. Um, and they are 50% more likely to leave if their parents do not serve. So if you're here faithfully on Sundays, but you don't plug in in any particular way, you don't use your gifts, your, your kids are 50% more likely to stray. And I think it's a disconnect that they're seeing between, you know, what mom and dad says is important versus what's actually important to mom and dad. 33% more likely to stray if your church does not have a ministry towards college-age students. We've already kind of spoken to that, so check that box. Um, and then last thing, it says 109% more likely to stay if you graduate college 90% more likely if the college has a Christian environment. We talked a little bit about, it. you know, the private school, Christian school didn't really matter much for high school. It did seem to matter more for college, if you think about it. Um, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're asking a lot of hard questions in college for sure. Um, but I think this number has, it, it was a little surprising. I, I don't think it has anything to say about intelligence. I think it has more to say with just sticking to something. Um, those of you who, if you did graduate college, I think at a certain point you were just like, I just want to finish this and get it done. Um, but what we're seeing is, you know, it's easy in this generation to say, oh, you don't like t-ball? Well, we're just going to quit. Or you don't like your basketball team? Well, we're just going to quit. And if you develop a habit of that over and over and over, it translates into church life. It translates... Um, 
the same attitude towards school translates into church life, I think. Um, so it's a hard thing. Uh, Jesus says this is a narrow path, and not everybody's going to walk it. And there's going to be some times where, man, it felt like we did everything right or everything we knew to do. And sometimes the, our kids break our heart and just walk away from the faith. Uh, and sometimes, despite our weaknesses and deficiencies, you know, God can produce great fruit in the lives of our kids. Um, but one thing that I found to be a small encouragement was that among those who walked away, uh, statistically speaking, about 25% of those kids come back when they start having their own kids, which, you know, something in there is, uh, is taking root in them. But if you want to turn with me, we are going to read a few verses today from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'll be closing with these and some thoughts. Deuteronomy chapter 4, and we'll start with verse 1. So verses 1, 2, and verse 9. And this is Moses speaking. He says, Now, Israel, hear the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God of your ancestors, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. And if you were like a highlighting, underlining person, that last bit. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. So in part, um, I've really been identifying lately with Moses as like the first youth pastor in the Bible. And that he's leading a bunch of people who were like two generations younger than him. He probably didn't understand uh, their TikTok trends or whatever. <laughs> And he's like, I provided food for y'all this Wednesday. And they're like, we don't like that food. We want different food. Um, he's like, we're going to go on a trip. And they're like, who else is going? Are my friends going to go? Um, what do I need to pack? Um, and then maybe he loses his temper at his flock every once in a while and just has to hit a rock with a stick. Um, but What's going on in Deuteronomy? If you've ever tried to read the Bible from the beginning and you get to Deuteronomy and you're like, oh, I, I feel like I've read this before. Like, it's because you have read it before. Uh, the word Deuteronomy means second law. And what's happening here is before they go into the promised land, he is repeating, he's giving the law a second time to this new generation. And why is he doing that? It's because... The moms, the grandmas, the grandpas, they weren't there anymore. That older generation was not going to be able to go into the promised land where the younger generation was going to be. And so he knew before we go into this unprecedented place to face unprecedented challenges, we've got to make sure that this newer generation knows God, knows the word, and knows the importance of teaching it and passing it on to their children and their children's children. And the analogy is very clear for us as a church, that if we're not doing those things, um, if we're not passing on to that next generation of, of elementary kids, of youth kids, 
uh, we've, we've lost our way. We've lost our purpose. I said in the first service, you know, we might as well go back to Egypt or sleep in on Sundays. Yeah. Yeah, it's incumbent on us as God's people to make sure that we are making ourselves available to the Lord to be used of Him, to pass the knowledge of who God is and His Word and how to teach that to those coming behind us, that we do that for those coming behind us because that's how we got here. That's what somebody did for us. If we could see the whole picture at one point, you would see that there's an unbroken chain of relationships that got you to where you are today. From Jesus to where you are now, there's this unbroken chain of relationship after relationship after relationship of somebody passing down the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word to somebody else. And I know that most of us have grown up in a time in our society that's very consumer-driven. We've been taught since we were little that it's all about what we want and how we want it, and it's easy to be really, really self-centered. But listen, as God's people, that can't be us, especially as it pertains to passing our faith down, that we have not, we can't keep thinking like consumers, but we must think like servants. And when I think about a servant, my mind a lot in the last week or two has gone to Isaiah in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 6, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In the middle of all this, he says, and then I heard the Lord say, who, who, will, who can I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah stepped forward, and he said, God, here I am. Send me. I, I want to carry the knowledge of who you are, your, your love, your grace, your compassion, your laws, how people can know you. I want to carry that, God, to the world around me. And I think that's the word that God has for us today. And I appreciate Josh so much being here and setting that stage for us today is you and I have an opportunity. The reason we're still here, adults, is because God's not finished with us yet. And, and I know that we're good to minister to one another, to our peers and so forth. But I want to encourage you and challenge you in the days to come as it relates to your children, your grandchildren, to the children that you see in your neighborhood, uh, in your community, at your school, and right here at Grace Life. When you see that child, understand there is a battle that's happening in the heavenlies over their heart and over their soul. This knowledge that got dumped on us today, that worldviews being shaped from 13 months to 13, that's knowledge that our enemy has known for a really long time. And I pray that we would leave here today with a renewed sense of commitment to what Jesus has called us to do, to go and to make disciples. And that's of all nations, of all people, of all kinds, of all ages, but to recognize there is a strategic opportunity in front of us as it relates to this generation of young people that God has put here under our care. Tonight in covenant service, part of what we will read as we renew our promises through our church covenant together is we will raise those under our care in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And church, I pray we'll take that to heart. And that'll be more than just making sure the door is open on Sunday, but that we would give ourselves to say, Lord, here I am, send me, use me. I remember when I would go to church with my grandmother as a kid, there was this one old man, Brother John. And you know what he did? When the kids would come by, he would just smile and he would talk to us for a minute and he'd give us a piece of hard butterscotch. 
the, you know, the hard butterscotch candy. I never forgot that. And I saw Jesus in him, although that's probably not how I would have described it at the time. He was just the butterscotch man. But the way he loved and paid a little bit of attention to a little squirmy kid like me, it made a difference in my experience when I was with God's people on that day. So just because you're maybe getting on up in years and maybe your world's not kind of in that world anymore, but yet when God gives you an opportunity, man, if you would say, God, here I am, send me the impact that God could have through you on somebody else. You don't, know have, you don't have to know how to do it. You don't even have to be able to do it. Just be available. Just like Isaiah say, God, here I am. Whatever you would have me to do, I want you to send me. Amen. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for what you're teaching us. God, we, we have to wake up. And like the men of Issachar, we need to know the world that we're living in now. God, we want to know the world that we're living in so we can love this world with the love of Jesus, so that we can better know how to connect to their hearts, how to better communicate. Lord, we don't want to retreat into our small little huddle of holiness. But God, we want the power of the gospel to flow in us and through us, God, to a world that's broken and hurting and looking for answers. God, I thank you for a church family that truly does love and invest deeply in the next generation. God, I pray that you would impress that on our hearts more and more in the days to come. I know there's families in this room today, grandparents and parents who we hear all this information, God, and it can be a little overwhelming. But just as I told that new mom and dad in the first service today, unless the Lord builds the house, according to your word, Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so God, our hope is not in church programs or incredible parenting skills. Our hope is in you, Jesus. And so we want to fresh and new today, commit ourselves, our families, and this rising generation to you, that you would move, that you would work, that you would save. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Let's stand together. We want to worship. We want to position our hearts to respond to what maybe the Lord's saying to us today. Would you say today, God, send me. I I, I don't want to just be a consumer. I want you to send me. I want you to use me, Lord. Give me sensitivity wherever I go, wherever I am, to see where you're working and how I can join you in whatever that might be. Let's worship the Lord.